This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 41, our look at how clinical trial designs and strategies are evolving, plus from the vault, a section of the 2020 episode that asked what we could learn from past drug trial failures and set the stage for researchers to learn the lessons we talk about in this week's episode. This conversation starts with Jorn Schottenberg asking whether these new, more focused approaches might lead to investigators overfitting patients. He notes the flip side of the issue, which is that we are looking for sweet spot patients that will respond to a given drug. Louise points out another issue. We encourage patients to improve through healthier lifestyles, but those who do so may no longer qualify for trials because they may not need biopsies. From there, the question shifts to the need to expand the inbound patient funnel appropriately, which involves expanding study of underserved racial and ethnic groups. As Stephen points out, we treat too many patients in similar backgrounds and assume the drug will work for everyone, even though we all know the importance of genetic differences in disease, etiology, severity, and outcomes. In the last part of this episode, Stephen describes what a broad outreach effort might look like. Stephen Harrison notes in today's episode that we have data from six sets of promising trials reporting over the next six to eight months. If they produce positive outcomes, this will result in part from the quality of medications and in part from the lessons investigators and sponsors have learned about improving trial designs as we discuss here and as compared to the vault episode we're presenting. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Jörn Schattenberg. I think there's a little bit of the risk that we're overfitting our patients. On the other hand, we want to really, as uh, Stephen said, sweet spot the amount of patients we want to still enroll because they have a liver disease that might be amendable or uh, druggable. And it's a tough decision to be made at the beginning. And as you rightfully said, it'd be very interesting to actually look at, maybe that's a predefined analysis you could include in a clinical trial, look at how the NITs perform in terms of enrollment and then adapt and go forward and agree on that with the regulators from the start. So that's a nice thought that should be taken forward. Louise Campbell. I think there's another part as well when we talk about the recruitment. Often sites will use the, we're going to give you three to six months to turn around and see if you can change your lifestyle and we see an improvement in your fibre scan, your other NITs. If that happens, we don't progress to biopsy. There is a way of looking after the patient that also can remove people from a screening timeline and into biopsies. And I wonder if anybody's ever analysed the effect of the liver biopsy on the screen failures as to how that motivates lifestyle change. Because most people do not want a biopsy and will do anything to avoid it. So where they've gone for that biopsy, and we've got a different score that rules them out of the study currently, there are a lot more studies now with milder disease that we're looking at more non-invasively. So we've got a cohort of patients with biopsy proven milder disease. So they may well be eligible for those studies. Biopsy itself is a big deterrent for patients. So whilst they do want to facilitate and participate in clinical studies where they need to, they will also do their utmost to try and improve their own health if that's an option prior to the study. So I think there's a double whammy sometimes of trying to recruit into these studies with biopsy and non-invasive. The more we move to non-invasive markers to monitor and look at outcome generation, then the more we will get a lot more of these patients in and we can look at it from that. But it, there is a double whammy of trying to recruit and trying to help somebody's healthcare as well. Stephen Harrison. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting thought. I You would think that 
sticking a harpoon in the side of somebody and telling them that they have disease or that they don't have disease would be a real motivator. Unfortunately, I'm not sure I've seen that pan out in clinical practice. I think the times I've seen it help is when we tell them they have really bad disease. But quite frankly, that could have likely been told to them on a non-invasive test. And as you mentioned, the double whammy could be you go to a biopsy and you tell them they really don't have much disease. Well, then they feel like, well, I guess those potato chips and french fries and tortillas and chips and queso that I'm eating isn't that bad after all. My liver looks okay. Uh, despite the fact that, remember, we're taking one fifty thousandth of the liver, but we're only looking at one H&E, which is one fourteenth of one fifty thousandth, which is really one hundred one seven hundred thousandths of their liver uh, and rendering that opinion. So just as just as we could overstage disease, we can understage it as well. And I think at that point we might be doing them a disservice. But just circling back to the topic of the conversation, that is what has changed, you know, in the past year with clinical trials, I think it is that we're screening more people off NITs than historical biopsies for sure. Either because our practice patterns have changed or the warehousing days of are over. We don't have a bunch of biopsied patients just waiting for a clinical trial. But I think more so the, the mentality has switched away from doing liver biopsy and more to non-invasive tests, and that's fine. But I think the next step is refining which NIT to use in clinical trials based on the population we're studying and which particular cutoffs work and, and, and being malleable enough in the middle of a clinical trial to assess the efficacy of your pre-screening strategy and adjust fire along the way where needed to optimize screen fail rates. But let's be real, I think as long as we have liver biopsy, there's going to be an ongoing issue with heterogeneity, an ongoing issue with interpretation and sampling variability. So there's only so much we can mitigate that screen fail rate within ITs. At some point, the only way we're really going to be able to leave a big fat dent on that is by shifting to a new criteria histopathologically or to an NIT. The new histopathological criterion is probably for another day in the near future because it's something I think we really do need. If you go back to the idea that goes success breeds success, so the fewer patients you can fail inappropriately, and at the same time, the better job you can do of getting the right population into the trial, that just would seem to breed a whole bunch of success on a whole bunch of levels. And that makes infinite sense. There was one other thing I was hoping we'd get to touch on a little bit today, which, Stephen, you kind of started tiptoeing into, and then we pull back and out, let's just dive in, which is if you keep going to the same locations to recruit your patients, there are literally going to be tens of millions of people in the U.S. alone who never get access to anybody who knows anything about clinical trials that are ongoing because they're just not in that loop, right? So if we broaden the loop at the top and don't improve expertise at the top of the screening process, then going back to the psychology problem, you've got results that have low stimulus power. But if you can broaden the funnel at the top at the same time that you're improving your ability to qualify people appropriately for trials, then you can start to massively increase the supply of patients that are available. Now, that's not a two-week process, but none of this has been a two-week process. So, I'm wondering what steps we're taking to actually broaden the number of patients that get into the top of the funnel. Is, is there progress being made in those areas right now we're talking about? Well, I think there's real opportunity here. And look, it's not just about broadening the funnel. It's also about disparities in clinical trial enrollment. I mean, we 
we've gotten a little better at it, but we underrepresent Hispanics, we underrepresent African Americans, other demographics, Samoans. You know, we just assume that the drugs are going to work equally well, despite knowing the genetic predispositions are widely varied amongst these different ethnic and tribal groups. So broadening that aperture not only would potentially improve the disparity in trial enrollment across these different uh, racial and ethnic groups, but also increase the throughput. So how do we do that? Well, I think I don't propose to have the ideal answer, but one of the areas that we're focusing on in Texas and in Kansas City, quite frankly, to try to mitigate this is something called decentralized trials. This is where we look outside of a referral area for a brick-and-mortar center, and we go after areas that, that heretofore have never referred patients to clinical trials because they don't know about them or because the referral center is too far away. And we set up, you know, a central area where we have an office, a small office, and then a couple concentric rings around that small office. We target primary care, endocrine, GI, cardiology, podiatry clinics, and really say, look, we are doing metabolic studies, obesity, diabetes, NASH, and we'd like to educate you about this and about the opportunity for your patients patients and become a referral center for you where we can actually either go to the patient's house and do the screening or we can provide a situation where they could come to a closer office area either through public transportation that's available in the city or through uber health or other mechanisms so we can either go to the patient's house or if they don't feel comfortable with us doing that, we're at a central location much closer to you and they could come to us either through public transportation, their own transportation or something else. And in doing that, you're able to educate a wider population of physicians and you're able to provide that level of care that heretofore has not been available to them and you're also able to increase the throughput. One of the peripheral tangential benefits of something like that is when you get a patient that has never been involved in clinical trials or a provider that has never seen a situation where clinical trials has been helpful and they have a positive experience, now all of a sudden those providers circle back to other providers and begin to spread that good news. For patients that come in and experience that, they go back to their communities and say, hey, brother, sister, mom, dad, cousin, uncle, aunt, this is what I just went through. You've been telling me you've had the same problem for years. Maybe you need to go see them too. And then vicariously that opportunity spreads. So there's like an organic way that it spreads and there's like more of a inorganic or peripheral way in which the information about that center spreads. But the problem is there are thousands and thousands of cities in the U.S. and around the world where you could adopt such a practice, but very little people currently doing it. So if you want to talk about where these clinical trials go from here, not just NASH, but any other therapeutic area, this is that great opportunity. The analogy would be you're Lewis and Clark looking out over the vast expanse of the United States.
States, and that's unclaimed territory. You don't know what's over the next hill. And so what comes with that is opportunity and, and also threat. And what, what do we not know? What is the risk of that? Are we going to open up a situation where we don't fully know, we don't have a historical basis from which to handle that? So, you know, yeah, we can talk about the opportunity, but we also need to be cognizant of the risk and how to mitigate those risks if they arise. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. I'll be off next week, but Louise Campbell will lead Jorn Schottenberg and a panel of health professionals and patient advocates discussing the nurse's role in clinical care pathways. I can't wait to listen, and you shouldn't either. I'll be back the week after that for episode 43, which will look at the evolution of combination therapies and their place in our future. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>